you lay in bed at night wondering what exactly you should be putting in your newsletter? Maybe how to generate passive income via a downloadable PDF is what's keeping you up. Or you have this great idea for a book and you're like, should I talk to a publisher or should I put it out myself via an ebook? You know what? If you are wondering any of these things, today's episode of the Creative Queso podcast is for you. I'm your host, Jennifer Perkins. When I'm not talking to other entrepreneurs about the business of being creative or the creativity behind running a business here on this podcast, you can also find me doing one of my other favorite pastimes involving crafts, kitsch, kids, or Christmas trees over on jenniferperkins.com. But today we are talking crafty business. I have been a fan of Abby Glassenberg for a long time, and not just because she had me as a guest on her podcast called While She Naps. I liked her long before that. She is an author, a pattern designer for companies such as Simplicity, small business specialist, Harvard graduate, and one half of the Craft Industry Alliance. Abby is part Barbara Walters, doing investigative glittered cover journalism, part Martha Stewart with her own line of adorable plush toys and patterns, and a little bit Norma Ray fighting for the rights of crafters everywhere. One of the reasons I love doing the Creative Queso podcast, besides getting to network in my closet with no makeup on, is I get to ask interesting experts all sorts of hot-burning questions that I have. Abby Glassenberg is an expert in so many areas, I could have asked her questions for days. Lucky for you, I kept it to about an hour. All right, Abby, I am super excited that you are here chatting with me. Like most of us in the craft industry, you have about 400 million things going on. I wouldn't I wouldn't call them side hustles, but I would call them all components to, that add to your one big interesting whole. You create patterns, you write books, you run Craft Industry Alliance, you teach, and more. So let's start kind of from the beginning. I read that, and I was very impressed with this, that you have an undergrad from John Hopkins University and a master's degree in education from Harvard. So were you like always crafty, just kind of like sewing in between like study sessions or how did that work? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I've always been crafty and always really enjoyed art and making things. Um, but, you know, it was definitely not something I was encouraged to do as like a degree. You know, my parents mm-hmm. were very much like, no, 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 you need to go and you know, get a degree in something more, I don't know, practical or something like that. So um, I was a history major undergrad and, you know, I took all the art classes that were offered at Johns Hopkins, which were very few, actually. <laughs> That's not something that at that time, at least, Johns Hopkins was known for, but they did offer a few. So I took like whatever they had every semester. Um, I actually ended up getting like an award because <laughs> I think I took like more than anyone else. And so I ended up I getting like senior year, they gave me like the art award because like <laughs> I was like the weirdo who took every class. But um, yeah, so, you know, I did. And even growing up as a kid, I took art classes after school. Like, you know, when my mom took me to private art classes after school, all through, through junior high school and high school. And I always loved, you know, I did like origami and made things out of polymer clay and like whatever there was to do, I was always making messes and doing them and with my sister and 
Um, my brother was really into music, so he wasn't so much into that, but um, my sister and I definitely were. And I learned to sew in eighth grade. We took home economics class, and back then they still had home ec, and um, we had um, sewing as part of home ec. And I, we did not have a sewing machine in my house growing up. My mom kind of rejected all of that. She was, you know, she's a feminist as am I, but she was like, you know, that's like not what I'm going to spend my time on. She was really uh, intellectual and um, a writer and just was not going to be sewing. So we didn't have a sewing machine. My grandmother also didn't sew. Um, So there wasn't really anybody to teach me that aspect of crafting, Um, but I really liked it in in home ec, even though I was terrible at it, as I guess any beginner would be, but I mean, I'd never done it before. So I did not do well and my seams were terrible, um, <laughs> but I could see that it was really neat that you can make something practical. Like you could make something you could wear or something you could use in your bedroom, like a pillow or something like that. And one of the things that always kind of bothered me about art class was like the finished product, it, I couldn't use it. You know, it was just like, something to hang on the wall, but it wasn't useful. And I really always loved the combination of utility and something like handmade or handcrafted. So I loved that with sewing, that was like the perfect combo. Um, so I, it was like a really exciting to me. And so I had my bat mitzvah that year and I got a whole bunch of money because I had like a huge party. So all my relatives came from everywhere and I got all this money, which was crazy. Um, And I used a little bit of it to buy a Burnett 330, which is like a really basic but pretty good quality, you know, sewing machine. It was kind of like the one you used in Home Ec. It was like a really basic machine um, at G Street Fabrics in Rockville, Maryland. And I had that machine for 23 years and I just brought it with me everywhere. Like after college, I did Teach for America. I brought the machine with me. I brought the machine with me to graduate school. I brought, you know, I just would bring that machine with me when I got married. It came to our apartment. Um, so I had the machine forever and I launched my business with that same machine. Um, but, you know, in the beginning I was just sewing scrunchies cause I like, I didn't know how to sew and it would break, you know, like the thread would come out and, or like the bobbin would get unwound. And I, didn't have anyone to help me troubleshoot, which if Uh you've ever tried to sell, like, you know, you really need somebody there who's going to be like, oh, you know what? You put the bobbin in upside down. That's why it's not working, you know? And I didn't have anybody like that when I was 13. And so I would get frustrated and I would just put it away for a while, you know? So I didn't really learn to sew until I was, you know, in my late 20s and started my blog. So do you still have that machine? No, it actually got broken when we moved from our first condo. We owned a condo in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is where we had our first baby. And then we were like, oh, this is a third floor walk up with no elevator and no parking. So we're going to need to move to the suburbs. And so we did. (laughs) Um, We moved to Wellesley, which is where we've lived ever since. And um, in that move, I think I actually didn't pack the sewing machine. Like I think it went in the car or something. I don't know, but it got jostled in like a bad way, you know, like it got banged or something. And when I got here, I set it back up again and I was like, uh, there's something jiggling in there and it was just broken. So yeah, I took it to the guy and he was like, yeah, I'll buy it for parts, but it's broken. So, um, I ended up, (laughs) I ended up going and buying a new machine, but, um, yeah, it was kind of sad, but anyway. It was time for an upgrade anyway, so it all worked out. So do you think you were like, do you think you got started sewing as like your little form of rebellion against 
you know, your mom not sewing? Do you ever, like, wonder if, like, some of it was, like, in that, that she was so anti-crafts that you were like, I'm going to craft. Watch me. Um, I mean, it's kind of maybe both things. I mean, she was always very encouraging for all artistic mm-hmm. everything. I mean, she's pretty artistic herself. She also took art classes along with us. And she, you know, if there was an art supply, she bought it. Like, she loves yeah. art supply. She, I was just over at their house. And she has so many art supplies. It's crazy. So she definitely – you know, was really encouraging of, of all of that. That being said, she I think she definitely looked at sewing as being kind of stuffy or sort of old school and mm-hmm. kind of like not, you know, just not something to spend your time on. And it um, used to be. I mean, I can see where yeah. she where she got that idea. Yeah. Yeah. So it was definitely she's sort of I think she still sort of sees it as this like alien language. Like, why are you doing like I'm like, oh mom, I've got these patterns out with simplicity. And she's like, You do what what are you doing? Like, why are you so you know, I think she's proud of me, but I think she just doesn't, you know, that's just not at all something she's gonna sit down and do. So um, like I've never seen her. I'm just trying to think. I've never seen her. So she she did a little bit of like Bargello at one point, but like I've never seen her sew anything, like not even a button, I don't think. So no. No, yeah. I hear you. I mean, my, my mom was super crafty, but then I've got the dad that was like that, like, but you went to school and you have this degree. Like, why are you crafting? What are you doing? Like, shouldn't you be? Yeah. Shouldn't you be doing this other thing? So I get it. Yeah. So- no. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I got my degree in, in what I did though, because I feel really prepared you know, who knew that the internet was going to come? Like nobody. And so, you know, I didn't know what my life was going to go. And I felt like so prepared to be able to do anything because I got this really, really good college education. And I felt like I can research and read and write and, you know, just basically take on any kind of project, which gave me all the skills and like academic confidence to, to go forward and take on, you know, whatever project I wanted. So in the end, it worked out well, you know, I think, um, they were well, sort no. of right, you know, like, yeah. but. You yeah. know, absolutely. Cause I was thinking about it because on your website, it says that you started out as, you know, a teacher, which in effect, you pretty much still are in a lot of ways. You know, you may not be teaching like a school-based curriculum, but you still teach, you know, people like me and you teach classes and, you know, you teach just in a different way. So you are using those skills, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, the years that I spent um, teaching and I worked at an educational nonprofit for two years as well, like they were definitely super valuable to me. And I do use those skills, not just in like breaking down complex topics into parts that people can access and understand. Um, And I do actually still teach classes. I just taught one on Monday. Um, But also, you know, I taught in the inner city for four years and you really get um, a a thick skin (laughs) no matter Uh where you teach, whether it's inner city or just in a regular, you know, classroom anywhere. Um, You do get a thick skin because kids are kids are tough. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, all kids are tough, especially when they're in big groups Um, and they, you know, anyway, you develop a thick skin, you learn to be tough too and that has helped me a lot um, to not take things personally and um, just to be like, I have a pretty thick skin. And I think that has served me incredibly well because, you know, when you're online and you're putting yourself out there every day, you're Mm -hmm. susceptible to a lot of comments, as I'm sure you know. And, you know, I tend to 
write about things sometimes that are somewhat controversial or people have differing opinions on. And sometimes those are cutting remarks that come back my way. And, you know, I definitely don't take that personally. And that's been incredibly helpful to me. And I think that that I got that through those years in the classroom. So, um, I mean, it was hard. I mean, I spent time during those years crying a lot, <laughs> um, right. but I don't cry now. So that was helpful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it all worked out. It all worked out in the end. But that is an important note. Like people, you know, be careful what you wish for. Th- people think they want to be, you know, on on this online space and this recognizable person and, you know, have this platform. But when you do, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised at things people will say to you, things you would never in a million years think of saying to someone else, but somehow the anonymity of the internet makes. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It it makes people say some pretty awful things sometimes. So what was, was your progression from quitting, like teaching at like a school into running like, you know, your own business? Was that just kind of a natural progression? I know a lot of us as mothers, we kind of just found our way that way because it started out because like your, you know, your whole company is called while she naps and it's because we wanted to stay home with our kids or we started doing it while they were sleeping. Did you make like a conscious decision? Like, you know what, I'm done teaching school or was it one of those kind of pathways? You know, I think I always wanted to be a mom. I mean, I remember being little and being like, that's what I want to do. I want to be a mom. You know, I always <laughs> wanted. I was, some people like, you know, they don't have that on their set of goals for life, but I always did. So I knew that I was going to want to stay home if I could. Um, and we were fortunate that, that you know, my husband had the kind of job that allowed me to be able to stay home. So that was going to work out. Um, and frankly, you know, we we wanted to have more than one kid. And you know, I was a public school teacher. And when you start to do the math, if you have more than one child pretty quickly, unfortunately, the way public school teachers are paid in the United States, mm. um, it stops being economically viable to continue to teach public school and pay somebody else to take care of your kids. Like it's just uh, – it the ratio kind of flips pretty fast. Um, so it was going to just for, for multiple reasons be better for me to stay home and we had two kids in two years and then a third one a few years later. So – Um, So that was, you know, the plan. And yet after, you know, nine months or so with just one baby at home, I realized that I actually needed something else to do, which was a huge surprise to me. Like I I was like, wait a minute, I'm unhappy. (laughs) So Uh um, I think, you know, I, I didn't expect that to be the case, but I had spent a lot of time building this great career as a teacher. I really enjoyed doing that. And I had a great degree and um, great credentials. And then I dropped it all and, you know, quit my job and quit my professional life to be home with this baby. And um, and then that was it, you know, and I felt super disconnected. And I just was like, I got to do more than this. Like, this is boring. I, I just felt like, I, I don't know, really at a loss. And so um, I read about blogs in the New York Times and I was decided to see if there were blogs for people like me who liked making things. And sure enough, there were. And um, I started reading some of them and then decided that I should start my own, which is why I called it While She Naps, because I had no intention of starting a business. That sounds like a mommy blog, which is not at all what I was. <laughs> anyway, of course, I mean, it's, it is what it is, but that's uh, I named it that. Um, And it was really just projects I was making while the baby was napping and just, you know, giving me a way to connect with other people and sort of have an outside connection and something else to think about. Um, And yeah, so that's, that was that, you know, that was the reasoning behind leaving the job and 
And of course, Etsy launched. Like I started my blog in May of 2005. Etsy launched in June and I opened my Etsy shop in July. So it became a business. I mean, it was a hobby business, but it be, you know, I started selling things that I was making pretty much right after I started uh, the blog. So there was some aspect of it being a business right away. Um, and, you know, it, one thing led to another and I started having gallery shows and writing books and um, it just, you know, it's just spirals and then boom, you know, it's a business if you want it to be, you know, of course. Exactly. And, yeah. So just kind of one thing led to the other, led to the other. Mm-hmm. So, but, but, you know, but going back to teaching, like we were saying, you just taught on Monday and I know you have um, a couple of online classes that you teach as well. Have you ever thought about teaching somewhere like Blueprint or Skillshare or Creative Live? Like I know Blueprint slash Craftsy just changed up their pricing kind of stuff or their payout, but you know, something like Skillshare, have you ever looked into that? So I do curious. have a, yeah, I do have a class on Creative Live. Back oh, you do? When, okay. Yeah. Back when Creative Live um, well, they had a more active sort of craft and maker channel for a while um, uh-huh. when Elizabeth was their sort of contact. And anyway, um, which was a lot of fun. I, it was cool. I got to fly out to San Francisco and um, and I was the first time I ever took an Uber. This was a while ago, as you can tell. Um, but it was like super cool. I was like, wow, check. This is like where the internet is made. I was like having the best time. And um, they had like a succulent wall and they had like a fully Ew. stocked fridge. And I know I was like, this is like a. Startup. You're like I've hit the big time. This is it was super cool. I'm like, this is not my life, my real life, but it was <laughs> neat. Yeah, it was super cool. Um, so that class is on email marketing, which is you know my I'm like I have a thing for email, email as you probably I know. know. I'm, so, I'm about to get to that. Yeah, so <laughs> that's that class is for email marketing for like creatives and crafters and stuff like that. If people want to check it out, but I had a lot of fun filming that, and um, I also just really wanted to experience. Like I really I I write a lot about the industry and about, you know, the, the sort of craft and creative world. And so if I can, I try to sort of get my feet wet in everything, you know, like I just sort of see everything as a sandbox and I'm like, Ooh, there's, you know, online classes. I want to try it. So I also have another online class through Annie's, which is a craft publisher hmm. based in Indiana. And, um, that, that class is a sewing class. So very different. I actually filmed them both in the same summer. So I feel, I flew out to um, Bern, Indiana, and I filmed this sewing class over the course of a few days. And then I came home and then I flew out to San Francisco and filmed the Creative Live class, which is a business class. Um, but it was both in the same summer. So it was really interesting to do. And again, like I loved having the experience of seeing like, what is this like to be like the creative talent here and to be among this film crew who are like making these for the craft audience and um, for the craft business audience and stuff so that I can speak intelligently about like that world and trying to market those classes and like I get the royalty checks and I see the yeah. ups and the downs and, you know, feel the pain like everybody else. So, um, so no, it's not on Blueprint, but it is, you know, out there. And um, I do feel like I understand at least to a degree sort of what that experience is like. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, and like, and, and like you were saying about like how teaching gave you a, you know, a thick skin or an understanding of how to convey information for what you do now. Same thing if you, you know, went out and taught those classes for those companies, I'm sure that gave you a good foundation for those classes that you have that you teach on yeah. your website. You kind of, you know, got to learn from the pros and then move on. Well, I'll have to look at that one. I, I have lots of yeah, questions about I, your email. I, 
Yeah, I teach a, a class that I produced myself that I have hosted on Teachable, which is like a platform you can just host your own class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, same thing, like that became a thing. People were, you know, making their own classes and selling them. So I wanted to try that. But definitely teaching the classes for the companies helped me because when you do that, you get like a producer and mm-hmm. you work with them over the course of a few weeks to come up with your curriculum and they kind of give you feedback and you learn how to break it down for that, you know, structure of video. Um, anyway, you get kind of comfortable with it and making like online lessons, which is different from in-person because there's your audience isn't right there um, interacting with you and giving you that feedback. So um, it, it was helpful when I went to make my own course for sure. Yeah, learning learning all about step outs. And it yeah. is, it's, a, it's a different world. I've done both. It is a very different World. So besides being a teacher, you've also authored several books, and this is going to go back to in-person classes versus online. So several of your books are print, and then some are ebooks. Do you have a personal preference for writing or creating one versus the other? You know, it's, that's interesting. The books are all with different conventional you know, mainstream publishers. So Mm -hmm. like craft publishing houses, um, like Sterling and uh, that kind of thing, um, like Interweave. Um, And they were really good experiences for sure. Um, I enjoyed doing them. You do lose a little bit of control when you publish a book with a publishing house because it's very much a collaboration you know, um, you're creating content, but they are also taking that content and formatting it and editing it and photographing it and titling it sometimes, depending mm-hmm. on the publishing house. Oh, and stuff. I know. And, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it, it spends almost equal amount of time with them in their hands as it does with you when you're actually creating the content. So um, in the end, I would say it's really a 50-50 collaboration, plus they're fronting all the money to have that book printed and shipped to the United States and warehoused and distributed. So they're taking a lot more of the risk. Um, and anyway, so it really is, it, it's not really under your control as much as you might like. And some publishers, of course, are, are more, more um open to listening to you than others. Some of mine certainly were, but, um, but be that as it may, it's still is a collaboration. When you do an ebook, um, at least my ebooks are completely self-published. So they're all mine. I mean, they're hundred percent mine. I hired a team to help me. You know, I hired, for example, um, an editor for each of them because all writing is improved with an editor. And I firmly believe that. So I did hire somebody to edit the words and help me with that kind of thing. I hired, you know, a graphic designer to help me just create like the cover and um, the mock-up and, you know, some things like that. But, um, but those were completely of my, um, yeah, under my control. And so could they have been improved in a collaboration? Maybe, you know, probably there could have been some improvements, but also they might've been shaped in a way that I didn't want. Um, Mm -hmm. so, and you know, I keep all of the money that comes from them, frankly. So I put up a certain amount of money to have them, you know, edited and that kind of thing. Um, but I made that money back really fast and I make a lot of more money off of the ebooks because, um, because they're mine and I can sell them infinitely. And 
the startup costs for them are really low. I mean, it's really making, I, I basically write a Microsoft Word document, um, you know, that's, you know, 30 or 40 pages long or whatever. And then I just sell that infinitely. So mm-hmm. in the end, it's very profitable for the amount of output. Good to know. Yeah. Cause I was thinking about it and like, you know, I've, I've gone through a publisher before, but I was always curious about the self-publishing. Do you think like, do you find that a t- certain types of books lend themselves better to one style or the other? Like if somebody has this like great idea for a book, do you think it really depends on like whether or not it's like an instructional book? Like here's how to knit these 20 different kinds of scarves versus here's how to pub- here's how to market your podcast. Does one style of book lend itself better to like self-publishing versus having a publisher, do you think? Good question. You know, I don't have a definitive answer for that because, for example, I know somebody who recently, um, she's an artist who does quilling, like the paper that you Uh roll around. (laughs) Anyway, it's quilling. Um, And she just recently um, released an e-book, self-published, of an alphabet. And it's done incredibly well. She did like a capitalized alphabet and then a lowercase and then numbers. And that's done incredibly well for her. Um, and then my – because initially my answer was going to be, well, if your ebook helps people to make money, then it will do well. Because a lot of times you can sell something for more money if it's going to help the audience who buys it make money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can sell a course – for a few hundred dollars if it's going to help somebody make several thousand dollars, you know, versus if it's going to just be something that they're going to use to, you know, make a quilt for fun, um, you might not be able to sell it for, you know, a few hundred dollars. You know, you might, but Mm -hmm. um, it could be a harder sell. So um, so that was going to be my initial answer. But then I thought of my friend with the quilling um, ebook and, you know, that doesn't necessarily help you make money, but she has done really, really well with it. So I think it just may be a combination of, do you have an audience that you've built that's loyal to you that will buy it? So can you reach them? You know, like, Mm -hmm. do you have an audience you can really readily reach? And is the product that you're creating something that they really want, you know, something that there's not already a lot of out there in the market and something that people, you know, are in high demand. Some people have asked you for, that's always a good indication. If you have that audience, they're probably talking to you. And so if you can listen to them and find out, you know, what they're like, what are they emailing you about all the time? Um, Sometimes you get resistant to actually make that thing, because it might not be the thing you wanted right. to make. Um, but if they keep emailing you and saying, like, how did you do this? I want to do this. What? How do you do it? Um, that might be the thing that you should actually just sit down and – because a lot of times it's like the, the answer is like right in front of your face. You know? It's like, I know, oh, I know. you're trying to overcomplicate it and think of some crazy thing. But actually, it's like the thing your customers keep just asking you for is the thing you're supposed to be making. So. I know. I was just looking at my Google Analytics yesterday, you know, and like looking at like your top 10 posts. And there are things that like I've created like one time. And you know, I was like, what should I make like more of? And like, here they are right in front of me, the top 10 things that people come to my site for. But I'm like, yeah, but I already did that. I don't want to do it again. Like, I think people fall into that trap. Like, I can't can't hit you over the head any harder with what you should be doing. Like, yeah. And it's boring for you and seems like 
obvious and repetitive and everyone's already seen it a million times, but it's really just you who've seen it a million times. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the thing about posting things multiple times on social media. It's like just because you posted that picture one time on Instagram six months ago, it doesn't mean everybody that follows you saw it. So. No, they totally haven't. And I just recently hired a social media manager to help me with my Instagram this year. That was one of my goals for 2019. And it's been really interesting to see. But one of the things that she's done is gone through my archives. You know, I've been blogging for 13 years, so I have a lot of archives, and she's, you know, really great at going back and, like, finding things that are seasonally appropriate and being like, okay, it's spring. Let's post this, you know, chicken egg project or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, she'll, like, find these things, and she posts them, and people are like, wow, I didn't know you made this, or wow, how did you have time to do this? And I'm like, dude, that is, like, eight years old. <laughs> like, right. But, like, nobody's seen it, you know, and to me, it seems so old, but, like, it's so brand new, so... I'm really grateful that she's like doing that, you know, because that content's still really good. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just like feels old to me. So I'm not motivated to share it. But hiring somebody who is, is great. So yeah, because to her, it's all fresh and new and everybody else. I've noticed that too. Like I'll have an old post where the photography was horrible. And it's like, oh, I don't want to share that on Instagram. But you know, it's like, two minutes inside of PicMonkey or a color story app. And it's like, that thing is Instagram ready and looks good as new. Nobody knows I made that right. thing 10, 10 years ago or whatever. So yeah, no. that's so true. I, yeah, I totally agree. So you've also, not only have you had books published, but you've also had, I saw at least one kit manufactured. So how did that come about? Yeah, random, right? Um, So you never know like what's going to pop up in your email. One thing I will say, just as like a piece of advice for people, if anyone's, you know, looking for some good advice um, unsolicited is that you should just stay on top of your email. Like I sometimes will see people, you know, they like show me their phone or whatever and they have like 10,000 unread emails and I'm just horrified because um, (laughs) I'm raising my hand right now. Oh my gosh. Don't, no, don't do this because um, I'm like Mrs. Inbox Zero. And the reason is, is because sometimes really interesting opportunities do come into your email. And if you are not on top of it, they will get passed over by accident and then you don't get them, you know? So I just really try to be on top of it. And um, anyway, so this is exactly how that happened. This uh, kit manufacturer for Quarto, which is um, a publishing house Mm -hmm. out in the West Coast, I think maybe Washington somewhere, um, just emailed me basically saying like, we have an idea for a kit of like miniature felt taxidermy animal heads. And we saw your big ones um, and we wondered whether you might be interested in creating this kit for us. Basically, it was for hire, you know, like they had already come up with the concept. They already knew what the specs were. They like, we need 10 patterns. We need, you know, these are some of the animals we're most interested in and um, we need them to be four inches by three inches. You know, they knew exactly Uh and they already had it sourced and everything. Um, and they're just like, we need you to make the patterns and, you know, write the instructions and everything. And this is the amount of money we can offer you. And, and I was like, yeah, you know, I'll do it. Why not? It, it sounds interesting and fun. Um, and actually like they didn't have a peacock on the list, but I made the peacock and they really liked it. So they put that one on the cover and, you know, so I was able to shape it to a certain degree. Um, and it was an interesting thing to work on. Of course you learn from every project and it was fun to see 
how they sourced all the materials from China. And like I got all the samples that came in and was able to play with them and give them feedback. And um, I don't know, it was, it was, it was just cool to have. And now I have, you know, I'm able to order them wholesale and sell them to my audience, which is a lot of fun. And then they were all in Barnes and Noble around Christmas last year. So that was cool to see. And my mom went to Barnes and Noble and was like, oh, I found them. So, you know, oh, that's, that's cool. Cute. Yeah. You know, um, I had not done like a kit that was manufactured before. So, you know, overall it was a good experience. Um, but you know, totally random. And even the, the fact that they had seen, like, I have these big taxidermy animals, um, that are patterns in my Etsy shop. That's how they, the Quarto people found me. Um, and even those came about because I was working with simplicity on other patterns and the simplicity lady was like, you know, taxidermy heads are really hot. Would you make for, taxidermy heads for a pattern. And I was like, sure. So even those came about commissioned by somebody else, you know, and it's just, it, so you, it's just good. Like these collaborative efforts, um, a lot of times really do lead to something interesting that I wouldn't have come up with on my own. So I do really enjoy working with other people, um, and finding out, you know, you, you just learn like, oh, wow, that, that I wouldn't have thought of that, you know? So, yeah, it's like the mastermind concept or like brainstorming with someone, you know, they didn't know they needed a peacock. You did. Yeah. And it yeah. all worked out. So besides that kit, you have lots of digital pattern kits on your website for dolls, quilts, faux taxidermy. Even there you have some other ones. And they're all super adorable. But I'm curious if you consider those downloadable PDF patterns, because I've always kind of contemplated like, what could I make into a downloadable thing to sell? Do you consider those forms of passive income? Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't really have a business until I started making those. Um, mm -hmm. So I published my second book. It came out in 2013. And I was just in this rhythm of making a sewing pattern every three weeks because that book, basically, I had to make a sewing pattern every three weeks in order to meet the deadline. So it took about like almost a year to make that book. So I was just basically like, boop, 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 every three weeks, here's a pattern. <laughs> and that was like my life for a long time. And so after I turned the manuscript in, I just made another one. I just like, you know, made I made a plush rubber duck was the first one. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take all the finished goods because I had my shop, my Etsy shop at that time was stocked with um, soft sculpture birds because that's what I had been making prior to um, writing that book. And so I was like, I'm going to take them all out. I just one day, I was just like, I'm delisting all of these. And I'm just going to put this plush rubber duck pattern in the shop and that's it. And I'm just going to start over, you know, like I never closed the shop. I just like removed all the inventory and made yeah. one listing for a pattern. And um, I put it in there. And then basically like every three weeks for the next year, I just made patterns for um, myself, you know, self-publish them. Um, and at that time they were super, super bare bones. They were just like Microsoft Word documents with a hand-drawn hand-drawn templates, you know, that I converted into PDFs and combined and uploaded. Really simple, like so, so simple. Um, but that was just the beginning, just a test, like test, can I do this? Does this work? Do I like doing this? And um, they sell really nicely. And then I was like, oh, wait, now I'm actually making money. And so I incorporated my business um, and I set up bookkeeping and I was like, okay, this is not a hobby anymore. Like now I have actual income. And that was when I like the, the tide kind of turned 
from it being up until 2013, it was really a hobby. Even though I had written two books, it was still really like the amount of income was really hobby income. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, I was like, I'm going to be able to like surpass what I was making as a a public school teacher. Like I'm going to be able to to really do this. Um, So for sure, like the patterns, you know, the patterns were the key. The yeah. patterns are the way to go. Now I'm like, God, what can I make into a pattern? Uh, you know, if you don't sew, Do <laughs> if you don't, if you know, if you don't sew, or you're not someone like Jenny Hart, you know, where you have the embroidery patterns that you can download. I have a hard time like wrapping my mind about wrapping my mind around like what I could make into a. A downloadable PDF. I need to hire you as a coach. I saw yeah, you we can I, talk. We'll, we'll talk about it offline. But yes, there's got to be stuff. I mean, I know. Even if it's like, yeah, multicraftual, there's got to be stuff because it is. It's really, really good. Um, and they sell consistently and have for years. And I just add to them, add to that library. And by the way, like I have since hired a graphic designer and like um, – <laughs> converted those files into like beautiful looking files and everything. So now everything looks pro, but you know, in the beginning, I think there's nothing wrong with launching in kind of a scrappy way if you're not sure. And you just want to sort of see, do I like doing this? Does my audience like this? Mm. Am I going to be able to really keep going? And without investing tons of time or hours or, I mean, not time or money, um, just creating, you know, like an InDesign template that's going to be super fancy. And then it turns out, you know, six months later, you're like, actually, these aren't selling or I hate doing this or both. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. You don't need to go all in and go hire a whole team to help you with it to start. Just kind of learn as you go. Yeah. Like I just launched a pattern this year for these um, little kids scarves that have little animal faces on them. And And I saw them. They're cute. Thank you. But like for that one, you know, like I hired a photographer, you know, like, I mean, it's like a whole process now when I do it. So it's not I'm like, it takes time and there's quite an upfront investment of money. It's very different from what it looked like back then. But you can work your way, work your way into that easy enough. So, you know, you have all these, you have like a really now, I mean, you said you started out just like hand drawing, but now you have a really robust array of downloadable projects. Do you think sometimes, do you think they do well because like what came first, the chicken or the egg? I know you're real hot and heavy into newsletters and you have an amazing newsletter. Did you have this like great newsletter and audience built in when you started selling these patterns or did the newsletter really grow when you started selling the patterns? I'm kind of curious, like, could someone have a PDF pattern business if they didn't have like a great you know, newsletter following like you do? Good question. Um, For me, just the first part of that, I did not have a great following when I started, a great following, like newsletter following Mm -hmm. when I first started selling the patterns. But I I kind of started the newsletter shortly thereafter. So um, maybe a few months in, I was like, I keep hearing people saying that you're supposed to have a newsletter. And um, up until then, people would be like, add me to your mailing list. And I would just take their card and be like, sure. And I would never do anything with it. I would just like throw it away. (laughs) I didn't didn't even have a mailing list. I'd be like, okay. And then I didn't do it. Um, But I finally like made it as – I try to set goals each year. So I made it – I think it was my 2013 goal maybe or 2014 goal that I was going to actually like start and mail, you know, an actual email list. And so I did. Um, So 
you know, they kind of happened around the same time, but I didn't start, I started with maybe a few hundred people on that list. So it was very small, um, at that time. And then it grew, it grew over time. Um, so could you start a PDF pattern business without that? I think you could start a PDF pattern business and grow, grow an audience, but you do need to work on growing it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, Email is not the only option. I think there are people out there who are just amazing at Instagram, for example, or who are really just amazing at Facebook. And I I do think that you can do it successfully if you are really, really dedicated and amazing at at least one thing, Mm -hmm. um, one of those platforms. It doesn't have to be email. I, I do think email is a great one, uh, a great choice for a lot of different reasons. But if it's not your cup of tea and actually you just are super in, you know, into one of the other ones, one of the other platforms, then that's fine. Um, but I do think you need to, to be into something in order to be able to grow an mm. audience. Um, I think depending on Etsy, for example, to bring you an audience is not enough. Like that's just not, not going to be enough to grow. You need to be out there doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You need to have all your social media platforms. Yeah. I always get scared. Like I'm that same way. Like, you know, like I was saying about reading like my top 10 Google projects and me still going like, no, Google, you're wrong. I'm the same way. Like I keep hearing people going like, build your newsletter, build your newsletter. And I'm just like, "Ah." but I need to get serious about it because you know, I was doing an interview with someone not too long ago, and I was talking about how, like, MySpace used to be my version of Instagram before I had kids when I had Naughty Secretary Club. But then all of a sudden, you know, the bottom fell out on MySpace, and it was like all of it was gone. It's not like I had those people's emails to add them to a newsletter, you know, all those like thousands and thousands of people were gone. So I'm always afraid of, like, not that I don't try to build my Facebook or my. Instagram. I just understand the importance of a newsletter because, you know, nobody mm-hmm. can, nobody can take it away from you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a hundred percent true. I mean, that is the main reason why newsletters are the best. You know, I think they're super reliable and super intimate and you own them. So to me, it can't be beat, but there are people for whom, and I've talked to people for whom it just is not going to work. Like they do not like the platform. They don't believe it works because they feel overwhelmed by their own inbox Mm -hmm. and they don't want to send something to other people's inboxes. They just don't believe in it. Like they don't like it. And if you don't like it and you don't believe, like it's just not going to work for you. You know what I mean? Like it it Mm -hmm. just, if it feels awful, like making yourself make it feel good is, it's just, that's going to be a hard process, you know, and that's okay. Like if, if Instagram really feels amazing to you and instead it's something's just got to feel amazing, I guess is my point. Yeah, no, I agree. And like, I think for me and for a lot of people I talk to, they're issue is about like, what do I say? Or like, what content do I put in there? And some of that could go back to what you and I were talking about, how you have the VA that's helping you with Instagram. You know, I've been blogging for forever and a day like you too. It's like, you forget, like you have things in your archives that you could put out in a newsletter information that may be old news to you, but someone may not have gone to your 2013 archives and seen that chicken egg project that would be perfect in your April newsletter. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, finding out, finding, figuring out what to say in an email newsletter, I know is really, really hard for people. And I have, and one of my eBooks is all about that. Like, what do you put in my your newsletter? I know. Um, that's why I brought it up. I'm like, yeah, everybody, go get that, go get that eBook. Like, if but you don't know what to say. Yeah. I mean, I, what I really recommend is making a template. Um, and I use MailChimp, which I really like, but I know there's lots of other email service providers, but whichever one you have, they make, they allow you to make a template. Um, and so in the template, you can set aside, you know, basically blocks um, that are going to have different types of content. So the first block maybe is um, a link pack. So it's, you know, three links that are you're always going to be there, three links to something of interest to your audience. And so you know whenever you're walking around in the world, you know, reading stuff online, whatever you're doing, you're going to need to have three links. So you can kind of like – have that in the back of your mind and collect them and save them as you go through the world. And that way, when you sit down to write your newsletter, those three links are really easy because you've already got them, you know, like saved over the course of however many days it's been. Um, and then the second block maybe can be, a, you know, a short letter from you. Um, and again, because you know that block is sitting there waiting it sort of percolates in your mind and you can kind of collect ideas for it. And then maybe the third block is, um, you know, featured items from your shop. So that's, you know, four items that you can just put a picture of and a link to items in your shop. And then maybe the, the next block is, you know, a recent blog post. So you have the picture and then an excerpt and a uh, you know, call to action to click over and read more. So anyway, if you have all those different content types laid out as blocks in your template, it just makes it a lot easier because it's all laid out, you know, what you need where. Um, and then if things aren't working, like let's say you had that template laid out and then a few months in, you're like, gosh, I can never find something for this block. Just delete that block. You know what I mean? Your template's flexible. It's digital. Don't worry about it. Just delete that block. Maybe you'll come up with something new there or maybe it was too many blocks and you don't need all that many. So, you know, just get rid of it and um, and just move on. Nobody's going to notice, you know, and maybe you put something new there or something different or something creative or maybe you've subscribed to a few other artists' newsletters over time and noticed, hey, that was an interesting idea. She did. I'm going to do something similar to that. And so you add a new block, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's flexible. But, um, but having that template set up makes the day that you sit down to do the newsletter so much easier. No, that, those are great tips. It's like having, having a theme or even like an editorial calendar, like you're not just like starting from scratch, which can be daunting for a newsletter every time. Like, yeah, I've got MailChimp. I need to go in there and, and do better about that. Now, do you think that everyone needs, I noticed this was a topic in, uh, on your website. Do you think everybody needs like a lead magnet or a freebie, like a downloadable something when they're getting people to sign up for their newsletter or you know, on their website? Good question. I didn't have one for a really long time. So I don't think you need one. And, um, you know, that's basically like a little bribe, like in exchange for your email address, uh -huh. I will give you this, you know, top 10 list or this free pattern or whatever. Um, and, you know, for a really long time, I, I didn't have one. So I don't think you need to have one if you don't want to have one. Um, if it just feels yicky to you and uncomfortable, then don't do it. Nobody, you know, there's no hard and fast rules for anything. So if you don't yeah. want to do it that way, don't, just don't do it. Um, if you do want to have one, there's lots of creative ways to come up with one. 
that is not going to be hugely labor intensive. You don't want to give away the farm. So you're not going <laughs> to give away a 25 page pattern, you know, give away something that's going to be like a simplistic, you know, something simple, something, a little add on, a little resource list, something that is of value enough to your readers, but it's not going to, you know, just be gigantic. Um, and, you know, I, I do think it helps it helps. It helps to grow your list, especially for, you know, traffic that is coming over like from Pinterest, for example, which is pretty bouncy traffic, meaning that they kind of, those visitors kind of come over, get what they wanted, look at what they wanted, and then click away really fast. Mm -hmm. And they don't tend to stick around and become loyal fans immediately. You do want them to become loyal fans. They had the possibility of converting into loyal fans, right? They did enough to click over. Um, So if you can write then, show them a pop-up and give them something, um, they they kind of want something because they want to remember your site and come back to it. And they don't really have a way to do that. So if you can just give them a pop-up, they can put in their email address to get the little freebie, then they they get something that they want and you get something that you want, which is their email address. And then you can market to that person for a while and you know show them a little drip campaign welcoming them and giving them a little more value, showing them around, introducing them to your brand, et cetera, giving them maybe a little discount code to get them started. And over time, that person does have the capacity to become a loyal reader and a loyal customer. So, you know, that's my strategy. And I do think it has been helpful, especially for that bouncy Pinterest visitor. Yeah. And, and, Pinterest is like a lot of people, especially in our industry's number one refer, but that doesn't mean they stay or you like keep them as a customer once they've like come and clicked on something like, so those are good tips. Have that. And I noticed you have the MailChimp pop up like for new visitors on your site. That was the other thing I was hesitant about. Like, I don't want every time someone comes to my site, the pop up thing comes up, but you know, you obviously can set it so that it only comes up the first time you come to the site or every 20 times you come to the site in case you, right, based on your cookies. Yeah, exactly. And I I really like pop-ups and I know people hate them. I understand your hatred of pop-ups, people. I get it. Um, but there is a way to make a polite pop-up where it kind of slides in from the right and it, it's it got a big X, which is really easy to exit out. It doesn't show if you've already been to the site. It doesn't show you know until another 20 visits or whatever. Or their exit intent pop-up. So it only shows as your mouse moves toward the top left corner where you're going to exit out of the site. Um, Then it shows right before you go. So there are nice polite pop-ups. And what I would encourage you to do if you're unsure about a pop-up is to record how many signups you get to your email list in an average week as it is now. So just, you know, just take a record and say, okay, this week I got 22 signups to my email list. Then install the pop-up and wait a week and then record how many signups that I got with the pop-up in place. I can't guarantee it, but I'm willing to bet you it's going to like quadruple. And it's it's just effective. The, the reason that I started using a pop-up was because I was on somebody's site and I had been on her site before 
Um, and then she installed a pop-up and I was there, the pop-up slid in and it was like, oh, sign up for my email list. I was like, I didn't even know she had an email list and I totally wanted to be on it, but I just didn't even know it existed. Mm -hmm. And when that pop-up slid in, I was so grateful. I was like, (laughs) oh, great. Yes. I would love to do this. Thank you. And I, exactly. I put my name in right away. And, and when that happened, I was like, oh, this is actually like a valuable service to people to be able to just show them, you know, on a mobile device even, like really quickly how to become part of this community. And, um, you know, so I would say try it, see what you think. Not everybody loves it. Again, there's no hard and fast rules. If you end up hating it and you don't want to do it, don't do it. Like, yeah, and take it out. It. It's not the end of the world. You're not making it yeah, permanent. Yeah. Exactly. Nothing's permanent. This is the internet. Just take it away. And I love <laughs> the like I it. love the term polite pop up because you're right. Like some, it's like if you don't want to do it, it's really easy to click out of it. But then some, when they like give you like a guilt complex, when it's like, no, I don't want this free valuable information. Like you feel <laughs> guilty. Do you know what I mean? Like the verbiage. Yeah. I'm just like, oh my gosh, the guilt, the newsletter or guilt, they, or like it covers the entire page. Yeah. And you're just like, I can't see anything. I can't read anything. I can't click this thing off. Like, I can't find the X. This is horrible. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. Between those two things, it's like, this is just unfriendly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just like, I don't understand what's happening. Oh, well. Okay. So your newsletter is actually, and I'm not just saying this because you're doing the podcast with me, your newsletters are some of the favorites, one of my favorites that I get. And I say this after I really... Marie Kondoed my inbox this year. I was like, I get way too many newsletters that I don't even open. I immediately delete like between you and Austin Cleon. Those are my two favorites that I always find Aww, like really thanks. cool, really cool information. in. so what are some of your favorite newsletters that you get? Oh gosh, I get a lot. I know I get so many. Um, let's see. Um, I like Ann Friedman's newsletter. So, you know, the thing with me is that I, um, I really do aspire to become a journalist. And so I follow a lot of journalists and, you know, listen to a lot of journalism podcasts. And anyway, so Ann Friedman is a journalist and she has a newsletter that comes out on Fridays where she collects lots of links to interesting things that Mm -hmm. have gone on that week. And so I, um, I follow hers. And then there's another one called Will Write for Food, which is a, um, a newsletter about food writing and, um, it's always got lots of really good links in it. So I like that one. I'm trying to think if there's like, I know I should recommend some good crafty ones. Um, I mean, Austin, <sighs> Austin Cleon is a lot like the Ann Friedman one. I don't know if you subscribe to him, but his is, yeah. you know, his are links to other interesting articles. It's interesting that you and I both say those are the kind of newsletters we like that it's you know, it's a mix of like what they've got to offer, but then also lots of links to outgoing, interesting snippets. Yeah. You know, it's like, hmm, maybe I should take mental note of that when I'm writing my next newsletter, like round well, up some cool pe- stuff. People are afraid to link out to content that's not their own. You know, they're like, well, what would be the point of me sending a newsletter if I link out the things that aren't mine? Mm-hmm. Um, isn't isn't my newsletter supposed to promote my work? Um, and my argument would say like, well, it actually also provides value to your reader. 
if you're able to find things that they would have missed otherwise. And so they will open the newsletter if they know there's going to be some sort of gem in there that they would, you know, like to know about. And it may not be that it's from you directly, but it's curated by you or, you know, you found it for them. And that service is something you've provided and that service is a value. So. Yeah, it's like it's like that uh, the Dinner Party Download podcast where you're just like, hey, thanks for those 10 interesting tidbits for me to talk about this weekend. Like, you know, like new and exciting little things to bring up when I'm in conversation with fellow fellow crafters or writers or whoever. Yeah. Where do you get all the information in your newsletters? I was thinking about this. Like, do you scour the internet? Do people send you tips? Do you have 743 Google alerts set up? It's a combination of all of those All of the above. Yes. I have a lot of Google alerts um, for sure. And I also subscribe to like um, PR Newswire, which is like a journalist's, um, you know, newswire kind of thing. Um, so I get those, like, uh, I guess they're like, um, what are they called? Uh, I'm blanking on the word. But basically, uh, when, you know, different businesses have things to announce, they uh-huh. go there and I get them. Um, and then I also I have a ton of blogs that I subscribe to. I use Bloglovin to subscribe to blogs. So I've got, like, a couple hundred blogs that I subscribe to through that. Um, I'm in lots and lots of Facebook groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lurk around. Sometimes I comment, but a lot of times I'm just lurking in <laughs> lots of Facebook groups related to Etsy and, um, you know, all that kind of thing, just listening to what people are saying, what they're talking about, the kinds of things they're recommending. Um, I'm friends with a lot of interesting people and they recommend interesting things all through the week. So sometimes it's just, you know, my friends on Facebook and on Instagram and like what they're talking about. Um, I get things that way. Um, LinkedIn is an awesome resource for me. So I follow, I probably have like, I don't know, 600 connections on LinkedIn and LinkedIn has an amazing news feed, which people don't know about. I know. I love it too. Oh, do you? Oh awesome. my gosh, I do. That's yeah, awesome. it is. It's very always got good. It's stuff. very informative and interesting, and it's sort of like your Facebook newsfeed, but it's on LinkedIn on your phone, and you just scroll through. And so I find out lots of like mergers and acquisitions and business news that comes to me through um, LinkedIn. So um, yeah, it's a lot of different ways, and then people send me tips a lot. Um, so I always am really appreciative. People will send me article links or. I always try to include um, links to paid work in the crafts industry because that can be really hard to find. There's no like jobs board or like digest, you know, a place where you can go to find opportunities. Um, And so if there is paid work, you know, like a brand is hiring for a certain kind of thing or um, a fabric company is looking for sample sellers, you know, that kind of thing, and they're actually paying, um, then I want to link out to that because it is valuable to my readers. They are able to, to apply to those things, which a lot of them really want to apply to, but they didn't know about them. Um, so I try to always include that. And so I'm really appreciative when either brands or people just send me links to paid work. Um, you're yeah, kind of like so a creative investigative reporter, which brings me to your other, <laughs> your other yeah. like title, which is craft industry Alliance. So, you know, you know, that's kind of, it's funny because you were saying you really wanted to be a reporter and a writer, which you really kind of are. I I feel like you're like a a crafty investigative reporter. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, Barbara Walters, but with glitter or (laughs) or with a sewing machine. So how did you get started down this path of kind of creating this, 
I don't, you know, I use the term watchdog group, but you know, you really kind of do like, you know, call people out or call attention to things like paying gigs. Like what got you started down that path? Um, well, I think when I, um, wrote my second book after I wrote my second book, I sort of became, I started a business basically, right. By selling the sewing patterns and I became interested in sort of the business side of things. Um, I realized through that process that, a lot of other business owners like myself didn't have an MBA. I certainly don't have one. Um, didn't go to law school. I certainly didn't. Um, but are creative people and kind of got into having a business by accident, which is exactly what happened to me, um, and then had to figure out all of the business side, um, figure out how to read a contract, figure out what all of this stuff meant. And so I started just interviewing people out of my own curiosity and realized that there was a whole interesting industry in craft. It wasn't just, you know, following patterns and making patterns, but actually you know, behind the scenes, there was like the industry part of it was really interesting to me. The business part was really interesting to me. So I just started pursuing that on my own blog. And then Kristen Link, who um, had the blog Sew Mama Sew, which was also an online fabric shop, and I got together and created Craft Industry Alliance, which is a trade association for craft business owners, um, to be able to provide, you know, um, top quality news and information and networking and professional development to the industry and um, in kind of a more modern trade association, which we really felt like there was a need for. And so that was founded in October of 2015. And um, yeah, so the good thing about that is that Craft Industry Alliance is not called Walshy Naps. It is not a mommy <laughs> blog. <laughs> and so when I call people to interview them or talk with them, I have like a legit association I can talk, I can say I'm from, um, which is very helpful. And um, rather than calling, because I used to call people and I still do from time to time um, for articles for my blog and you know it's like hey I'm Abby calling from Walshy Naps like oh girl I hear so, you I, I was Naughty Secretary yeah. Club for a real long time I know how that goes with the, yeah. with the brand name <laughs> you're like oh god so um so yeah it's definitely more legit and um has much more of a community purpose behind it and which is great and we've been able to do some really you know positive things I think for the industry and hope to continue to do that for sure um, and yeah, I really enjoy writing. I really enjoy being a journalist. I've learned a lot about becoming a journalist over the years, which has been an interesting development. Um, as I said, my mom was actually, um, she was a writer for the Washington Post when I was growing up and I was always like, I'm never doing that. And of course now here we are, right. um, <laughs> trying to do the same thing. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, I, one of the things that we felt like was that, um, craft really is not covered in the mainstream media in general, you know, unless there's some big story like, you know, Etsy goes public or something like that, then okay, yeah, it's going to cross over. But most of the other craft stories are like, not your grandma's knitting or, you know, Always, some yeah. silly story like that. Um, but of course, like within craft, every social, political, um, you know, economic uh, issue plays out in this industry. Um, and it is really important to the stakeholders who are here, who own these businesses. And 
they 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 are deserving of a real media outlet, and we felt like we should be able to provide that the way that you know other industries have trade journals. We didn't mm-hmm. really have a trade journal, not a serious one. Um, and we deserve one. We should have a trade journal. And, you know, in this day and age, a trade journal is a digital journal, which is totally fine. Um, but we should totally have one. So, you know, we pay writers and we're really proud to be able to do that so that we can get really good voices. And, um, you know, we pay everyone who works for us. So it, to us, it's it's just really important that we have a seriousness of purpose and we're able to really provide the, you know, news, uh, you know, as it breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is breaking news in craft, you know, it, it may be women's work, but it is important work and, you know, it sustains us. So it's work that needs to have real coverage. Yeah. And thank goodness you're there because like you said, I mean, you can, it's far and few between that you go through, you know, Inc. or Fortune or Money Magazine and see anything about Right. You know, a creative business, even though they're there and there's big viable companies. Like last week I talked with um, Nicole Snow of Darn Good Yarn and her company, oh, yeah. her company made $7 million. million. I know. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just like, I just don't think people, you know, they still kind of think of it as like, oh, that's cute. You're crafting. It's like, no, it's a serious industry. And you're able to pay people because you have free content, but you also have, it's a paid membership option as exactly. well. Exactly. Um, So how many members do you guys have currently-ish? We have about uh, 1,200 members, and we have lots and lots of um, solo entrepreneurs, so people who are, you know, running a small e-commerce shop, maybe an Etsy shop, maybe a Shopify store, and are working from, you know, a a spare bedroom, that kind of thing. Um, We've got people who have brick-and-mortar stores, you know, maybe a, a quilt shop or a local yarn shop, that kind of thing. And then we've got lots and lots of people people who have medium-sized businesses. And we have several companies now who are very large businesses. So Joanne Fabrics is a member, um, Doris and Red Heart Yarn, and um, actually CSS Industries just joined and they now own all the big four pattern companies. So um, we have companies of all sizes that are part of Craft Industry Alliance and, you know, like Dharma Trading and, you know, and then we're continuing Mm -hmm. to grow that corporate membership side as well um, so that, you know, we are able to bring all of those sort of people together to make relationships between one another, to open up lines of communication together, and also for partnerships and collaborations so that people can find influencers if they need that, or um, just people to work together on marketing campaigns or blogging campaigns and that kind of thing. So the more that we are all together talking with one another and working together, the better. Um, so that also when something goes wrong, you know, like there's a copyright violation or, you know, people aren't being fairly compensated, you know, that kind of stuff happens, which of course happens in all industries and happens in ours. Um, we know who to talk to, you know, there, there's a person that we can say, Hey, you know, we're all in this same organization together and, this kind of thing is happening. We need to talk to you um, Mm -hmm. about this because it's not right. Or, you know, could you address this with us or, you know, whatever. So that some of those miscommunications and then kind of embarrassing social media craziness that can sometimes happen as a result don't happen as much because we're all together talking and and we can, you know, help to build those bridges for sure. You guys are like the Norma Ray in there, like (laughs) mediating these things like, hey, this is how this needs to go. (laughs) You know, we just hope to, yeah, just to bring, to build community. 
you know, that's definitely part of our goal is to build community with one another. And um, yeah, just to open up, open up conversation. So all of this, like you do the patterns, you do the books, you have the kits, the, you know, online classes, this, that, and the other, and you podcast. You are, yeah. you're making my head spin. <laughs> so besides me, and I'll link to your podcast in the show notes. So besides me, obviously, who are some of your favorite guests? I know you love them all, but you know, the premise of Creative Queso is kind of the business of being creative and the creativity behind running a business. So if somebody was going to just like, you know, download three that could really kind of help them with their business, with the media action steps, do you have like, you know, some episodes to suggest? Sure. Um, I mean, my favorite, I think my favorite one was talking to Nancy Zeman. Mm. Um, I spoke with her just a few months before she passed away of cancer. And it was just an incredible honor to be able to talk to her and reflect back on her amazing career and her life. And I just was so complimented that she took the time to talk to me and um, and she's just so gracious and lovely and such an example of somebody who um, just led the way. And so anyway, I, I think being able to hear her voice again, you know, I grew up, I watched, you know, Nancy on PBS. I remember nursing my baby and watching her on PBS and wishing I could. So, um, but of course being like strapped to the couch while nursing yeah. the baby constantly. So, um, I just, yeah, I love that episode. It's, it's, I think going to always be my favorite. Um, and so I recommend that one. I also, I really enjoy talking to Jess Brown. She has a doll company. Um, that's a, beautiful company um, making dolls. And she's expanded in a really interesting way where instead of doing patterns, she's hired people to sew dolls for her. And she's got a warehouse set up in California where, you know, people come and sew dolls and she's able to therefore sell them at at a price point that um, makes sense and, you know, license them to a lot of different companies to do collaborations and things like that. And um, she really invented a certain look to the handmade doll that are it's just beautiful. So I love dolls. Um, and, you know, that's part of what got me into sewing in the first place. Yes. So I, I just love that episode with Jess Brown. It's pretty early on, um, but I love that one. And same with – I have an episode with Ann Wood. Um, and she makes uh, like soft, soft sculpture and miniatures of all different kinds. Um, and she makes birds, and I made lots and lots of birds <laughs> as well. And so I, I see I, you have a preference for yeah, for dolls, know, those are, quilting, and soft are, sculpture. <laughs> yeah, those are the things that I love the most to make. And so talking to them where it was an honor. And Anne and I have become good friends over the course of, of the years. And so, um, I love talking to her. I mean, I, I'm always really honored when anybody decides to come on the podcast, um, and talk to me and share their story with me. It's just great. And I've loved having, I've had my podcast for five years and it's a lot of work, but I've really loved having it. So it just gives you an excuse to call up everybody you've ever wanted to talk to. I know, right? It really, (laughs) it's funny because I was, uh, Vicky and I drove to, I don't know if you saw, I posted on Instagram that Vicky and I went, Vicky Hal and I went to a field trip yesterday in San Antonio with our kids. And on the way back, we were like, let's record an episode of the podcast. And it did not work out. I thought I was recording and it didn't happen. But what, uh, I know, I was just like, man. But uh, one of the things we were talking about is how, you know, without really knowing it, a lot of times you start these podcasts because 
you want to learn from these people or you have questions or they're, you know, or you're a fangirl and you want to talk to them. And it, you know, it's just this like fun little like community to where, you know, you and I get to hang out for an hour over the phone and then everybody gets to listen and learn from our discussion. And it's, yeah, it's, it's lovely. Yeah. I really, I, I didn't realize that I missed that aspect of like community so much. Yeah. You know? like, it's lovely. Being a yeah. solopreneur can be isolating and starting a podcast is a nice little addition to your to your social life. You don't even have to put on makeup and you get to hang out. (laughs) I'm enjoying it. So it's good. It is good. So the last question, I won't keep you any longer. And I have to ask everybody this is tell me all your thoughts on queso. Do you have it there? Do you not? Is it big? Is it not? It is not. So I live in Boston and no, it is not. But (laughs) Um, yeah. And also like, I've just, I've been trying to eat really healthy. So. Hey, there is, Um, there is vegan queso. The Crafty Lumberjacks told me about vegan queso. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't think I've had it maybe since like college or something. I mean, honestly, yeah, no, you need to come make me some. It's It's, not happening over here. It's delicious. I mean, it's like, it's like the bloodline of Austin. If you ever come down here. I'd love to go to Austin. I it's on my list. We actually almost planned a family vacation out there. Um, so it's it's on definitely on my list. I think QuiltCon twenty twenty. I've heard is that it's coming in back. Austin. Mm-hmm. So okay, that's some. I didn't go this year because I had a family occasion I had to attend. So that is maybe when I'll come. You so we'll should. Uh, last time it was here, I met up with like I went. I don't quilt. It was gorgeous, and then I met up with Susan Beal. And, oh, yeah. And Trisha Royal. Nice. Yeah, all kinds of people. Jesse from Art School Dropout. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, all these people that I was like, I'm so excited to see you. I'm so glad you quilt. So. Yeah, totally. Well, maybe um, I'll come out and we'll go get queso and it'll be great. I like it. We'll talk quilting. We'll eat queso. <laughs> it all will be right in the world. Well, in the meantime, thank you so much for being here. I'm, I feel Thank po- you. I feel like I need to go check my email now in case I'm like, I'm missing some uh, special some special offer. And now I've got new podcast episode suggestions to listen to. I know. I know. Uh, That's the way it goes. I know it. Well, thank you so much. It's been so fun. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Guys, thank you so much for listening today and hanging out with me on the Creative Queso podcast. Find out more about Abby on her website, While She Naps, and her podcast of the same name. If you are in the creative industry, I highly recommend joining the Craft Industry Alliance. The wealth of information is well worth it. Check my show notes for links to all the episodes we mentioned, books we talked about, and all those great classes you can take. Guys, I'm I am your host, Jennifer Perkins. You can always find me at creativecaso.com or jenniferperkins.com. Thank you again to Abby Glassenberg for being my guest, my producer, Mariah Gossett, and the music from Chris Beck. And I will be back next week with more things that are keeping me up at night. 